Standing tall on the wings of my dreams, rise and fall. Here's a big purple high back covered chair, which is like the purple cow. Slow man, stroke man. Welcome to episode 28 of the Presidential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 and under 90 and discuss the life, legacy, and little-known facts about every American president. Season 2 is sponsored by our friends at Greek's Pizzeria. Place your order today at greekspizzeria.com. Russ? It's our taste. Yeah, it is. We're covering Woodrow Wilson today, boys. I'm your host, Ryan Allward, joined by Blaine Zimmerman, and the voice you just heard, our vice presidential expert and our producer extraordinaire, Russ Slivka. Blaine, tell the people about the book we read. What we're calling the episode and what we're drinking tonight. Okay. Okay, that sounds. <laughs> the book uh, was aptly named Wilson. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> one thing that we've learned over the course of this time is that the authors of these books don't have a lot of creativity. They really don't. It's typically, like either their full name or just their last name or like their name, a president. And they like to use their initials as well. And. In doing so, this guy flips the script. It's Ooh. A. Scott Berg mm. instead of Scott whatever his first name Andrew is. Andrew S. Berg. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, I think they're, of all the books we've read, there's only been like two that didn't use an initial. It seems a little hoity-toity of all the authors to be like, mm, just... If you're writing a biography about a president, yeah, you're probably hoity-toity. Yeah. So one of the things I liked about this book... Go ahead. I don't know how to explain this correctly. <laughs> all the pages on the long edge... Mm-hmm are of a different length. Yeah. it's So uh, it almost looks like looking at like an old Bible. It's like a rough cut. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a clean side. It pleased me hmm. as I was reading the book. The aesthetic. Yes. Is it an aesthetic you if you're touching it? it uh, yes. It's very tactile. Mm. Yeah, but I thought yeah. the aesthetic was just the looks. The look. Well, it looks pretty cool, though. Right, you don't have but, to touch it. Okay, fine. That's what she said. It does make changing or turning the pages difficult at certain points where you have to use the bottom. You can't do the side. Sure, sure. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. The book, though. What was Written the in 2013. It? It's Wilson by A. Scott Berg. 743 pages. And our running page tally now, 27 presidents in is 11,965. That's a lot of pages. That's a lot of miles. <laughs> Several have I made that joke? I feel like I have. This episode is called The Pioneer. Because uh, as I was reading through it, I, there were a lot of firsts. Oh, and like I feel yeah. like we're going to have to cover a lot of his firsts throughout the episode. Yeah. So you're going to end up being like, at the end, like, well, we talked about this, but he was the first president that did That's this. That's true. So to drink tonight, thanks to our mystery Ghostbusters drink sponsor. Hmm. Codename um, Venkman. <laughs> we have selected Old Forester's 1920 Prohibition style. I like it. And you'll find out why maybe Prohibition style makes sense later in the episode. Hmm. It was bottled as a medicinal whiskey, 117. Yeah, that's West how they Main got away Street. with it. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is medicine. No, it's medicine, though. We <laughs> need this to survive. And it is tasty. It'll put some hair on your chest. Cheers, boys. A little 1920, a little Woodrow Wilson. Get it in here. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Like clinky, cheering. clinky. There we go. All right, what do you guys remember about Woodrow Wilson from social studies, high school government class? Russ, why don't you start first? Nothing. Okay. Blank. World War One. Uh-huh. Was that it? Uh, prohibition, I think. Yeah. I remember the League of Nations, vaguely. And I remember that he was just overall kind of fancy. Oh yeah, like he wore a top hat, and yeah, he was he was a little bougie. Well, yeah, there's yeah. a lot. There's yeah. a lot in there. 
There's a lot in there. Let's dive into uh, his early life, shall we? Here we go. All right, well, Thomas Woodrow Wilson was born on December 28th, 1856 in Staunton, Virginia. Although he was born in Virginia and raised in Georgia and South Carolina, his southern heritage differed from his parents' upbringing. What day did you say he was born? December 28th, 1856. That's actually disputed. Oh, is it? So hmm. he claimed yeah. that his birth date was December 28th, 1856. His family New Testament says it's the 29th. Okay. So it's actually like one of those like super nerd arguments yeah. people make. Like, you know, there's presidential conferences. That oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. Well, didn't uh, that's Washington, where they have those arguments. Washington had a birthday that was disputed as well because they were using a different yeah, calendar that makes at the sense. time. He yeah. was old. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's a good point. <laughs> he was old. Like, yeah, Napoleon <laughs> was still around. <laughs> Did you say his family's New Testament? Yeah, that yeah. was a thing. Oh, I don't know what that do you means. not know this tradition? Oh, so the New Testament comes after. <laughs> yeah. so, so Malachi is the last book of the Torah. Got it. And then uh, the Gospels start 400 years later. No, I understand and, the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, roughly. Yeah. Like, it exists. Also known yeah, as the Christian I think you understand that it exists. I don't know if you understand the It's yeah. like the family Bible. They Who would can? Like, record uh, you know, births and deaths and all that. And it was usually Specifically like in the down. South. Like that was a really like it's a it's almost like a rite of passage passage Passion in the south. As well, they were very passionate. To own a family Bible, yeah. and that family Bible would have your family history in it. Yeah. And as it gets passed down, you're putting like so and so was born, so and so got married. So there's so. pages left for that information. Oh, yeah. You're not writing it in the. It's still a Bible. I mean, have you ever seen a Bible? Like yeah. the first fourteen pages are like the New Testament. Mm-hmm. The Holy Bible, mm-hmm. King James Version. Like, that's oh. all that's on these pages. Yeah. And then you finally get to the, what, three or four pages of all the books. Yeah. And then there's, like, a foreword mm-hmm. by, you know, I don't know. It, the the beginning of Bibles is always weird. It's like 300 pages yeah. before you get to, in the beginning. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, anyway, speaking of Bibles... Wow, what a great segue, Rye. Thanks, Rye. <laughs> Wilson's father was a Presbyterian minister from Ohio, while his mother, Janet, known as Jesse, was born in England, making Woodrow the only president between Andrew Jackson and Barack Obama to have a foreign-born parent. Wilson's parents moved from Ohio to the South prior to his birth. So his father could actually trace his lineage to ancestors that directly followed Martin Luther. That's pretty far back. Yeah. Well, hold on. Let me think about this. Martin Luther was what, 1500s? Give yes. Or take? So that's sure. 350 years. That's a long time to be able to trace your ancestors. But I mean, people yeah. now can, well, but we have the internet. Yeah. But they but had still, the finally, they had the family Bible. Back then, they did right. have the family Bible. <laughs> so, so it was easy to track. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank you. And usually they were worth like a lot of money too. So it was like a, a prized possession. The family Martin Luther's Bible. followers? Well, yes. But the, the family Bible was like a, a Oh yeah. It was a very precious there was item. Like in the a home. famous uh rock song, right? Or a country song? Family Bible? Probably. I don't I'm know. I'm pretty sure it was. Well, Wilson was present in Georgia when Union troops entered his town, and his mother tended to wounded Confederate soldiers in his father's church. At age 13, Wilson and his dad were at a procession in Augusta, and the future president stood next to General Robert E. Lee at the event. Later, Woodrow witnessed Confederate President Jefferson Davis marched in chains through Augusta, Georgia. So he had a really unique perspective of the Civil War at a very young age. So I think that this is a little bit of foreshadowing. Because as we'll see, as president, he is war averse. Mm. And I think, personally, 
I think that that could have something to do with him seeing the actual effects of the war yeah. in person. At a very war age. as a child. Sure. His father actually used their church as a hospital after the Chickamauga mm-hmm. battle, which, as we know, is like the second bloodiest battle of the Civil yeah. War. Somehow, Sherman spared Augusta. There's a rumor that there was a woman involved, like even in his biography that I've read. The the Sherman biography is fantastic. Mm. I highly recommend it. But in this book and in the Sherman biography, they both kind of talk about like nobody really knows why he didn't burn down Augusta. Hmm. It could have been because there was a woman he loved or a woman's father, a woman that he loves father lived there. I'm not, I don't exactly remember, but he spared it. So Wilson, you know, and his family lived, right? Yeah. Like you said, watch Jefferson Davis get arrested. Mm-hmm. But Abner Doubleday, who is... The inventor of baseball. Allegedly. <laughs> Thank you, Russ. I mean, I think yeah. you were the... when I, I think when I said he was the inventor of baseball, you were the one that big, threw up a big guffaw about it. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, you were like, no, depends on who you ask. <laughs> I, I absolutely did not say that. That's a poor Russ impersonation, <laughs> that is, by that the way. That's pretty bad. <laughs> <clears throat> we'll go to the tape. Depends on who you ask. <laughs> Oh, that's that pretty better? good. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> I think Abner Doubleday came up in the, it was either Buchanan or Lincoln. He, with, yeah, because he was credited with inventing baseball. He was uh, But was he injured? not also, did injured. fire the first volley back from Fort Sumter? Okay. Yeah, maybe was that's that what it was. Either way, he may or may not have invented baseball. He made it popular. Yeah. And he went on like barnstorming, barnstorming tours to teach the game. And he directly taught Woodrow Wilson how to play baseball. I think this is a good transition from yeah. young Woodrow Wilson mm. to Princeton Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, baseball he, had been very, very good to him. His local baseball. <laughs> Solid. Great Sammy Sosa reference, Ryan. There you go. His local baseball league he wrote the Constitution for. Oh, that's adorable. Because <laughs> it was just introduced to the South. Do you remember the first college he went to before Princeton? Uh, Davidson? Yeah. Do you yeah. know who else went to Davidson? I don't. I don't even know where Davidson is. It's in North Carolina. I don't know. So who went to Davidson. this will be. Do you know? Who, do you know who I'm thinking of? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So this will be the second person that I will ask the question. Okay. Second person from a North Carolina college mm. that I will ask the question: Who was more of a famous alum, the president that came from the school, or the basketball player? So if you remember, mm. Tyler, Tyler went to mm. North Carolina. Yeah. As did Michael Jordan. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Woodrow Wilson went to Davidson. Yeah. As did Steph Curry. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. But Golden State Warriors. I don't know. Shooter. Yeah. yeah you, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know that we can consider Woodrow Wilson an alum because he was only there for a year and then Yeah, he was there for a hot minute. Yeah, College tra- of New Jersey at the time. Transferred to Princeton in 1875. He graduated uh, four years later, ranking 38th in his class of 167. While he was there, he fashioned a business card in his finest penmanship that read, quote, <laughs> Thomas Woodrow Wilson, senator from Virginia. Just, so he had he had some political aspirations even as, a, even as just a, an undergrad. The scene in American Psycho when they're comparing oh, business yeah. cards. Yeah. It's a great scene. <laughs> yeah, that was him. Well, he went on to study Hold on. At, oh, we sorry. can't gloss over okay. Princeton that quickly. He had never heard the Star-Spangled Banner before getting to Princeton. <sighs> He, I was telling a friend today that the Star Spangled Banner's first verse that is sung most often is... The only one we're allowed to sing out loud. <laughs> yeah. Start to finish, <laughs> it's a question. Another fun fact about the, uh, the Star Spangled Banner, it was written to the tune of a British drinking song that mm-hmm. was popular. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. So he was really overactive 
in his extracurriculars at Princeton. Mm-hmm. He was very he was extra about them. The president of the baseball team, the football coach. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> and an editor of the paper, all while an undergrad. <laughs> Gosh, how was he the football coach? Well, I guess what is the president like a of a baseball team? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe a modern day like GM, maybe? <laughs> well, no, you don't need a GM in college. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. The president yeah. of the baseball team. He was very depressed to have to leave. He loved Princeton. He promised he wouldn't join a secret society or a Greek letter fraternity. Mm. He loved every moment that he was there. He was depressed to leave. So what did he do naturally? He went on to study law. Shocking. Yeah. He was admitted to the bar in 1882 after graduating from the University of Virginia School of Law. Being a lawyer, however, was not in his liking, and he soon returned to school with plans to become an educator. He served as a professor at Bryn Mawr College until 1888. During this season, he married Ellen Lewis Axon, the daughter of a Presbyterian minister, which they had in common, on June 23rd, 1885. They would eventually have three daughters, Margaret, Jesse, and Eleanor. He also found time to earn a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins University in 1886. (laughs) Step where he also sang in the Glee Club. To date, Wilson is the only president to have earned a Ph.D. (laughs) Was that what he was singing? Yeah. Are you doing the scene? (laughs) Was Bryn Mawr the school that the girl wanted to go to in 10 Things I Hate About You? Or was that Sarah no. Lawrence? Sarah Lawrence. Okay. I don't know. I haven't seen that movie. Bryn, I mean, Bryn Mawr. It feel like it could Bryn, Bryn, yeah. Bryn Mawr. And I can go high like this. That's a great scene. I can go high. Uh, Second served, time I have falsettoed for the podcast. It's beautiful. He also served professor of history at Wesleyan University till 1890. And then he became a professor at Princeton. So he's back at his alma mater. In 1902, he was appointed president of Princeton. Wow. You're skipping ahead. A post that he held until 1910. Blaine, fill in the gaps. He had a stroke in 1891, which is important to bring up now. Mm, yeah. Yeah, foreshadowing a lot. <laughs> As we'll see, yeah. it's kind of important to know that he had a stroke yeah. right after college. Yeah, he was a true strokeman. All right. Slow man, stroke man. <laughs> he was prone Probably to... Probably to distress and overwork. He was prone to stroking. Okay. Prone to stroke. stroke. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But yeah, no, he did become the president of Princeton, which is really the job he always wanted. And I can relate. That's how I feel about Butler. Like, I went to Butler mm. and I was like, this place is awesome. Like, yeah. I could just do stuff here forever. It'd it be here. great. Yeah. yeah. In 1911, he was elected governor of New Jersey. Wait, you skipped ahead again. Right, In boy. 1905, mm. He attended the famous Army-Navy game with Theodore Roosevelt because it was held at Princeton. The game that Roosevelt got bored, like, sitting in the stands and came down and uh, stood on the Navy sideline and then at halftime walked to the other side. Yeah, Yeah, Punched a moose in the face. And then in 1906, suffered his second stroke. Oh, gosh. You you keep jumping over the strokes. I know. Uh, Do you have any other strokes that that happened in Wilson's life in his time at Princeton? No. Those were the different strokes. It took those different strokes for him to rule the White House. Mm. Well, different folks, different strokes, you know. It took different different strokes. Different strokes. strokes. What's your favorite, like, 80s or 90s theme song? There's going to be people that, very few, one or two, 
that are like very big fans of ours that are like, do you remember when they changed to just a podcast that did songs? Because <laughs> <laughs> Alan Pick theme song yeah. after last week with yeah. Taft. Which one this we, week? Which, which one we did "I'll Taft? Be" by Edwin McCain. <laughs> sure did. Sure <laughs> did. We did like three or four in the oh, last episode. Did. Oh, in in Swedish, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 This is this is oh, what happens God. when we get out of the obscure ones oh. and we get to the ones that people know about. We're like, they already know the stuff. Let's yeah, just it's, roll them. It's yeah. fine. Yes, it's and strokes. what was your favorite eighties or nineties uh, like show theme song? I'll include like Sunday, Saturday morning cartoons. Show me just that like smile. Yeah. Oh, show me that smile. Yeah, growing pains. Don't That's a good waste one. Another minute on your crying. I think it's the first time we've ever harmonized. No, it's the second we harmonized in Cleveland for sure. Russ's favorite definitely would have been Oh, okay. Uh I feel like Webster. Oh, bloody, oh, blada, oh, blada. <laughs> I do like that. I do like that show. Yeah. Russ Corky. is a giant fan yeah, of I Life Do you like on. that show? I do. I like yes. that show. Huge fan. I won't um, tell you why. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I like uh, Perfect Strangers. Yeah. Uh, standing tall on the wings of my dreams rise and fall yeah the rain and thunder the wind and haze abound for better days and at the end they do the little harmonica you know what I'm talking about that made me so warm inside yeah it did Belky no that was the old forester <laughs> no that was great Old Forester, 1920 Prohibition style. All right, well, let's talk about 1911. He becomes governor of New Jersey. He made a name for himself by passing pretty progressive reforms, including laws to reduce public corruption. And within two years, he would find himself in the White House with only 658 days of public service under his belt. So by 1912, he'd become a pretty popular figure in progressive politics, and he actively campaigned for the Democrats' presidential nomination. After reaching out to other leaders in the party, Wilson was able to secure the nomination with Indiana Governor Thomas Marshall as the VP nominee. Do you remember who helped? Who helped him get the nomination? During It was in Baltimore. It was during the Democratic uh, well, Convention. I remember Baltimore. who helped him win eventually, and that was Teddy Roosevelt by FDR. siphoning. FDR, a young FDR, hmm. started a Woodrow Wilson Club to stump for Wilson to win the Democratic hmm. nomination over Clark. Hmm. So he passed out buttons like he and huh. his boys just rolled down to Baltimore. Literally started, rolled down. Rolled down. Oh, I get it. I don't think it was that advanced yet. Um, <laughs> Wheelies. He was Wheelchairs like, weren't that advanced yet? Where they could roll? There was no, squares. I don't think his his problem. I don't <laughs> think his triangles. problem was that advanced. <laughs> we, should, we should fix. I this think design. he could still walk, is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, okay. He didn't. He didn't have adult onset polio at that point. <laughs> we can joke about it. It's been eradicated through vaccines, has it not? Yeah, that has. Yeah. Go ahead, <laughs> FDR buttons. So yeah, so yeah. he was a big fan. Yeah, he was. Uh, and <laughs> He's part of the reason that he got nominated, and Wilson didn't forget it. Yeah. That was one of those, the theophany in this book. JFK is the other one, right? Well, I've got an Eisenhower one, but it doesn't come until later. Oh, no, I've got the Eisenhower one. Okay, (laughs) Blaine. It's on the next page of my field Ah, notes. Here we go. The Republican Party was divided between uh, heavyset Taft and Bully Roosevelt, allowing Wilson to easily win the presidency with 42% of the vote, which was actually the third lowest winning tally in history. Roosevelt received 27% of the vote, and Taft had 23% of the vote. One thing I did like about Wilson, Uh when 
Teddy got shot, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Couldn't campaign for two weeks, yeah. so Wilson also decided not to campaign for two weeks. He tapped oh. out. That's yeah. gentlemanly of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Teddy Tack was uh, just like... Chivalrous. Yeah. Yeah. The name of Wilson's proposed reforms during his campaign speeches was called New Freedom. And there were three main tenets of the New Freedom proposed reforms that he had. Tariff, business, and banking reform. With the advent of automobiles imminent, Wilson became the last American president to arrive to his public inauguration while being transported by a horse-drawn carriage. For the first time since Franklin Pierce's inauguration in 1853, there would be no official presidential ball, which Wilson chose to omit because he saw it as an unnecessary expense and a source of graft or political corruption. Okay. He was like, nah, that's not for me. I just want to make a comment here. Yeah. This is why I called it the pioneer. Mm -hmm. He was the first to do so many things in office. Mm. He was the last, to your point, to not ride in an automobile. But he was in the first automobile that rode to an inauguration. You are correct. So we'll get back to that. Yes. Okay, on with the borophil. Here we go. Uh, Did you say on with the borophil? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're talking about tariffs right now. So one one of the first things that he did when he became president was the passage of the Underwood Tariff, which reduced rates from 41 to 27%. It also created the first federal income tax after the passage of the 16th Amendment. Okay, here's some firsts. Mm -hmm. Well, not all of these are firsts. One, and I'm going to beat you to it, one of the West Point cadets that marched in his inaugural parade was Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah, it was. Yes. Got you. just take that out of my notes. <laughs> uh, he ate breakfast like Rocky. Mm. Do you remember his breakfasts in well, the White House? No, but I hope that you'll tell us about him. He would eat two raw unbeaten eggs in orange juice and a bowl of porridge and coffee. Wow. Like he'd wake up in the morning, throw on the Bill Conti record, and just... <laughs> Just crack it fly now. <laughs> oh man, that's great. In March March 15th of 1913, his yep. administration held the very first White House press briefing. Oh. And on April 8th of 1913, yeah. he gave the very first in-person State of the Union. Ooh. So right away, right out the gate, yeah. we're doing first. Most often, yeah, it was like a letter sent to yeah. Congress to be read. And we've talked about it like yeah. multiple times because there have yeah. been multiple right. like important things that have been said in those letters to Congress. And we've yeah. always said like it wasn't in person yet, wasn't in person yet. Yeah. Now it's in person. Boom. Yeah. yeah. Very first year. So he was elected in 1912. Yeah. But he would have been inaugurated January 20th. Yeah. So this is a month later, first White House press briefing where he allowed interviews. A couple of months later, or m- weeks, months, he, Minutes. Ella, Ellen, 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 his Ellen created the Rose Garden. Yeah, she did. You're right. You're so pissed off. I can see it nope. in your eyes. It's all right. taking all of them. No, I love, I Look, love. Here's what I don't have written down his Look. last words. So you oh, still get that. Don't touch my hand. <laughs> that was adorable, by the way. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned all these first, because within three months of him being president, not only the 16th, but the 17th Amendment was also formally adopted. So, I mean, he's hitting the he's hitting the pavement hard, man. May 31st, 1913, it was formally adopted. The Amendment, uh, the 17th, provided for the direct election of senators. Prior to its adoption, senators were just chosen by state legislatures. So things are shifting politically within the landscape very early under Woodrow Wilson. Take a break. Yeah, you know what? Y- yes. <laughs> yes. It's been a while. Yeah, I got to process you touching my hand. Hey, we'll be right back. You're listening to The Pioneer. Blaine, you look different. Did you get a haircut? 
Oh, I did. Thanks for asking. Oh, it looks nice. People have been noticing more often since I've started going to Chop Chop Barbershop. Say that one more time. Uh, people have noticed more often since I've been going to Chop Chop Barbershop. Chop Chop. Yeah. It's this super cool, very clean spot over by 16th and College area. Oh, yeah. 16th and Yandis, if you will. Okay, I will here uh, in Indy. Yeah, super cool building, old school style barbershop. Anthony always fades me up well. He leads this diverse team of three other barbers all three of my kids get their haircuts there even my wife gets her haircut oh they there. do ladies cuts yeah, too. from you know fades to braids and everything in between i love that and if i wanted more info where could i go i would check out personally chop chop okay chop chop from, from fades to braids to kitty cuts to the coolest barbershop there is I don't want to look bad, so, so I'm going to go to Chop Chop Barbershop. Yeah. yeah. Doop, doop. Yeah. And welcome back. Hey, if you love the podcast and you're really, really enjoying it, you want to get episodes early and ad-free, join our Patreon community for 5 bucks a month at patreon.com slash presequential. For 10 bucks a month, you can also get our exclusive bonus episodes on other influential Americans sent to you on email every time they come out. You, at any level, will help us to be creating more and more of these episodes. Sign up today at patreon.com slash presequential. All right, Russ, you are our resident vice presidential expert. Tell us about Woodrow Wilson's VP. Thanks, Ryan. Mm-hmm. His VP was Thomas Riley Marshall from the great state of Indiana. Come on, Hoosiers. We're That's really good right. at vice presidents. Yeah, we, we really are. We do have a lot of good VPs. We are. I think I have a quote about that. According to Thomas Riley Marshall, yep. Indiana is the mother of vice presidents, home of more second-class men than any other state. Oh, I hate that quote. I yeah. hate that is That is that not. It's, it's terrible. It's <clears throat> not good at all. He was from India. There's actually probably not a quote I hate more than that. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> we did have a lot of vice presidents, though. Yeah, we did. Yeah, but second mm, second okay. class is rough. Yeah, go ahead. It's kind of hard. Go ahead, Russ. So he was born in Indiana, and his grandfather was wealthy because on his farm they found oil. The, you know, let there be blood a, a, a thing. A rig. That's a great Oh, he rig. drank his milkshake. <laughs> yeah, he drank his milkshake. Yeah. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> It's a great movie. Yeah. I slurp it up, Daniel. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. And I drink your milkshake. <laughs> Even like shake. I've Gosh. actually been in character for there's, months. There's good anger in there, Blaine. <laughs> yeah. Well, there sure is. <laughs> Russ continued. Yeah, he was born in Indiana, but they moved around a little bit because his mom had tuberculosis mm. and his father get was traveling around to try to find a better climate that could cure it. Was he born in a they, small town and could he breathe in a small town? He lived in a small town. Mm. Mm. He used to daydream in a small town. Go ahead, Russ. His grandfather was wealthy, so he didn't have to work too much. Mm. And he devoted most of his money to the Democratic Party. Okay. So he was a a large supporter and very high up in the party. When Thomas Marshall was four years old, he was brought to the Lincoln-Douglas debates in Freeport. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. And his father was so high up in the Democratic Party that during the Lincoln-Douglas debate, Marshall would sit on the lap of Stephen Douglas while Abraham Lincoln was talking. And then Abraham Lincoln would sit back down and he would sit on his lap and Stephen Douglas would go up and and do his portion. What do you you want for Christmas, little boy? (laughs) (laughs) Let me 
give you an oratory lesson. I thought you were going to say he was like inspired by it. And I was going to be like, there is nothing more untrue than that. <laughs> a four-year-old listening to a speech and paying attention to it. Yeah, right. And remembered it as one of his earliest and most cherished memories. Oh, no. It's nice. I think he might have been told that by a parent and yeah. then he, he adopted the memory, maybe. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Nobody's going to remember that. Yeah. He was very much a Democratic family, and they did move yeah. around quite a bit. Okay. And they had moved to a, another city in Indiana, and the Methodist minister yeah. was trying to expel them from the church oh. because they voted Democrat instead of Republican. Wait, they conflated their religion with politics? It's crazy. That's actually, you're not allowed to do that. Huh. It's in so, the Constitution. I did not know that. Are you sure? I didn't oh know yeah, people did separated that. in church and state. Nobody mm, intermixes the it's two. It's not in the Constitution. Right. It's actually in a letter that Jefferson uh, wrote. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's in the Constitution. I don't think it is. Nobody ever puts politics behind the pulpit, <laughs> and politics never get involved in the church. It's oh, just that's yeah. right. I, yeah, I that's right. I've read that. You're being yeah. sarcastic. Marshall's grandfather never. replied that he would quote take his risk on hell but not the republican party oh my yeah wow <laughs> he would rather go to hell yeah than vote Forever. republican the devil on fire you know. gosh according to blaine's standards i have a this blaine my blaine you or james blaine i have a theophany <gasps> oh good <sighs> is this the first russ theophany possibly go ahead russ so when he was in college mm -hmm. he wrote for a newspaper called the geyser and he would write political <laughs> columns <laughs> It's, it was explosive. It was it was released every 17 minutes. <laughs> he wrote a unfavorable column about a female lecturer at the school accusing her of seeking liberties with young boys in their boarding house. Oh my. Yeah, so yeah. So she sued him for libel. Okay. The lawyer she got was Lou Wallace. Oh, you don't say. Mm -hmm. Union General and uh, Benjamin uh -huh. Harrison campaign biographer, along with the author of Ben-Hur. The author of Ben-Hur. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, he was being sued by Lou Wallace, so he hired his own lawyer. He mm. went down to Indianapolis, and he found a lawyer named Benjamin Harrison. Yeah, I was gonna, uh, man, I was going to guess Benjamin Harrison. You yeah. don't say. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Harrison v. Wallace. Mm. Mm hmm And Harrison got the charges eyeball dropped. Eyeball to eyeball. Which is interesting, because we learned from Charlie Hyde in episode 23 that Lou Wallace published the campaign biography of Benjamin Harrison without Benjamin Harrison even seeing a he final gave copy. Me, he gave me a copy of it. Yeah, he did, because he wrote the foreword. That's interesting, yeah. that before they were head-to-head -head in a court case. To be clear, he wrote the foreword afterwards. Thank you, Blaine. Yeah. <laughs> and this seemed very much Thank like you. a case where Lou Wallace should have won. Oh, like okay. he definitely, it was libel. It was in the paper. Was Benjamin he like, Ben Hur done that. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Guys, a joke. Ben Hur joke. Yeah. This episode's over. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Please subscribe and uh, leave a review. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Harrison won the suit for him, yeah. but he wouldn't accept any money for his services, but instead gave him a lecture on ethics. Oh, that sounds like yeah. a Benjamin Harrison thing to do. It was do. very much a Benjamin Harrison yeah. thing. Yeah. The old iceberg. Yeah. So he becomes vice president. Well, he, what, I mean, he was governor of Indiana first, but then he became vice president. Wow. What was his relationship like with Woodrow? It wasn't great. He okay. called it a functional animosity. Ooh. Acerbic. Yeah. 
It was acerbic. When he was offered the vice presidential nomination, he didn't want it. And Wilson actually had to convince him to take the VP nomination because he was going to include him in the process, which was the opposite of what happened. Wow. What was his influence in the White House, if any? I mean, it was merely in the Senate. He really didn't have... Wilson really just cut him out from the very beginning. Okay. Yeah. And cut him out throughout the process, too. Like... Very critical communications that probably should have gone to him, yeah. didn't make it to him. That's right. That's a little foreshadowing, too. Do you know, at the end, if he returned to Indiana? He did, okay. and I believe he died there as well. And oh, okay. he is buried in... Crown Hill. Crown Hill yeah. Cemetery. Crown Hill. He's, yeah. he's definitely buried in Crown Hill. Russ, thank, thank, you, Russ. You, thank you very much. Alan. For, You're welcome. For all of that. So Ellen dies in 1914. and Bright's disease. Yeah. Which is, uh, as we learned, Russ... Yeah, it was uh, Bright's disease was beatnik slang for like somebody who knew too much. Like they're too bright. Yeah, no, watch out for that like, guy. He's got bright. Like disease. he might, he might, he might know rat. something that'll rat you out on. Yeah, beatniks. Beatniks. This was brought to you by the hole Russ went down this week. Toby like, Gillis. Russ, Russ gave us like four different beatnik yeah. facts. Yeah. In the group text this week, and I was like, "Well, we know what rabbit hole Russ yeah. went down." Have <laughs> you guys read On the Road, Jack Kerouac? Yeah, yes. yeah. I know we didn't know each other in college. Yeah, but you, you were that guy. You, you read Kerouac. I, well, I was. I'm a gigantic Bob Dylan fan. Oh, fun. Okay. So I've read lots of Jack Kerouac. Yeah, you hate good singers and you love horrible ones. All right. So Ooh. Wilson turns his attention wow. to the widowed Edith Galt, <laughs> fearing that remarrying so soon after his first wife's death could harm his chances for reelection. Wilson's handlers lied and said that basically a former mistress by the name of what was her name? Mary Peck, Mary Peck planned on selling off his love letters. Well, Wilson confessed his involvement with Peck to Edith. She married him anyway. And so Edith certainly had the right ancestral stuff to be the president's wife. Born to a U.S. circuit judge. Your Pepsi background. <laughs> what? She was a real Pepsi background. What do you mean by she that? She had the right stuff. Baby. She had the right stuff. There it is. Or I was going to go new kids on the block with the right stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, 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 your Woodrow Wilson's second wife. (laughs) So uh, her dad was a U.S. circuit judge and her mother was a socialite from colonial Virginia. And Edith was a direct descendant of Pocahontas and was a blood relative to President Thomas Jefferson. And by marriage... She was related to First Ladies Martha Washington and Letitia Tyler. She ended up playing a huge role in her husband's career, which we'll get to a little bit later. So this second wife of his, she had quite the bloodline. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. That is that is a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. That is Pocahontas, That's the type that's Jefferson. the type of I can do I can literally get away with murder. Right? That's the type of person that can literally do whatever they want yeah. at all times. Yeah. And then just be like yeah. Take care of this. Yeah. And it's done. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he believed in segregation. In fact, he actually allowed his cabinet officials to expand segregation within government departments in ways that hadn't been allowed since the end of the Civil he War. He wouldn't let African Americans into Princeton. It, yeah. it went back before he was president. Correct. Yes. And so. And there's a big thing within the last, what, year or two where people wanted to get rid of his bust at Princeton and people were like, yeah, oh, it's I the th- woke people. And it's like, no, he hated black people. Well, I think there was also <laughs> like, a, like a hall that was named after him, maybe was, or a school. Yeah. Well, or I mean, something. he's probably as entrenched in the Princeton campus as Eli Lilly is at Butler. Or Jefferson would be at UVA, it, yeah, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Back to uh, the film Birth of a Nation. So, oh, uh, man. Have yeah. you ever seen it? No. Really? No. So Why would I wa- want to watch this? 
It's not a matter of wanting to. I watched it for film school. Let's back up for our friends at home who, who may not know what we're talking about. So Wilson supported this film by a man named D.W. Griffith called mm. Birth of a Nation. Dude, it's awful. So he even included the following quote in his book, History of the American People. Quote, the white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation until at last had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South to protect the Southern country, end quote. He did a private screening yeah. of the movie in the White House. He, he was also the first president to have the first movie screening in the White House. And that's what he went with. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if you don't know about the movie, basically there's an African-American that gets elected a senator. Okay. And the concern is that they, quote unquote, are going to overrun the Senate. It depicts white people in blackface, like eating watermelon and taking their shoes off and putting them up on the desks, like on the Senate floor and in Congress and things like that. And then I believe there is a rape case and the brave and mighty Ku Klux Klan come in and like save the day like wow. that's the whole and it's like three freaking hours Gosh. of a silent movie it wow. is like all around painful to yeah. try to get through yeah and he did a private screening of it in the white house yeah like and we're not talking about like the apologists that are wrong but want to be like well that was just their time yeah like we're 1915 we're well past the civil war there was not a threat and then jim crow laws which the book, even his own biography yeah. posits, was solving a problem that didn't exist hmm. because white people and African Americans in the South had been working together and living together for decades, and it didn't become a problem until we created Jim Crow segregation laws, and now all of a sudden we can create a dividing line based on color yeah i could be wrong about that but that is definitely i probably am wrong about that that's definitely what the book presupposes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that jim crow laws created the concept of you can't work here because yeah. you're not white and it wasn't an issue before what are you shaking your head about <clears throat> i'm looking at all the other movies that came out in 1915 like yeah. he had so many other decent options there uh, was like the Charlie kid chaplin was the movies. kid I don't but think Charlie so. Chaplin, yeah. Go yeah. with that. Go with the safe one, man. Yeah. Who's on so first? There's so safe ones. That's Abbott and Costello. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Later. I don't know. Third it's base. It's less crazy than this whack-a-job movie. Yeah. 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 These Jim Crow laws that he signed because he was, well, he claims he was bullied by Southern senators. Yeah, there was like Staying a- in effect until the stinking 60s. I think there was like a PR campaign that he tried to wiggle out. Oh, yeah. Of, no, there like, was a saying, PR campaign afterwards where he was like, I didn't know what the movie was about. Like, it was your classical, like, yeah. I did this thing and right. then I found out people didn't like it. So I made up this thing about how they, I didn't know. Yeah. This freaking Jim Crow law, it stayed in effect till the 60s and we're still seeing- remnant effects of it today mm. like mm -hmm. second and third order effects of getting rid of it yeah. which haven't really gotten rid of it Ugh. it makes me angry i like the undercurrent of just anger that's consistent whether we're talking about that or whether we're talking about <laughs> like, double day anything else here we go we're gonna dive Your into world war one all right so world war one or actually it was known as the so great war at the time that. began in 1914 when arch the war to end all wars yeah Archduke Francis Ferdinand was assassinated by a Serbian nationalist. And there were agreements made among the European nations, and many of them eventually joined the war. The Central Powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, and Bulgaria, fought against the Allies, Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Japan, Portugal, China, and Greece. 
America initially was neutral, but on May 7th, 1915, the British liner Lusitania was torpedoed by a German U-boat. There were 159 Americans on board the Lusitania, and this event sparked outrage in the American public and spurred a change in opinion about America's involvement in World War II. So, second U.S. battle that was fought based on an instance with a ship. If you remember the Spanish-American War with the Maine in Havana Harbor, not a Lusitania. It's not an American ship, but a bunch of Americans on board. So it happens under Wilson's watch. I disagree. Go ahead. I disagree that the Lusitania is why that we joined World War I. It sparked the movement that eventually got us into the war because Wilson actually kept us out for a while. He ran on a re-election campaign that the slogan was, he kept us out of war. Okay. There was so, also a Zimmerman telegram. Right. How do you feel about that, Blaine <laughs> Zimmerman? I have one lesson. So let's talk about some of these undercurrents. Sure. There's a, a particular... <laughs> Undercurrent, like the torpedo that blames the Lusitania? <laughs> so let's go on a deep dive here. Shall we? First, before we ever got into World War One, yep. he was so enthralled with Edith that he was on dates and courting her while important things were happening yeah. in the, the midst of World War One, while he was trying to keep us out. He didn't think that <laughs> national security and whether or not we should get into a war were more important than his love life, which is neither here nor there. He was constantly writing love letters to her. Yes. She actually first got into official business when she asked for William Jennings Bryan's resignation because he was a pacifist. She told Woodrow that he was a traitor and lambasted him, and then Woodrow Wilson went and asked for his resignation. Hmm. So there's some foreshadowing yeah. for you. Good uh, he was lambast. the first president to attend a World Series game. The Red Sox beat the Phillies 2-1, to one. so another first. Yeah. They got married at Edith's house instead of the White House, and then had a well, honeymoon. That was, that was also because he knew that marrying her in the White House right after his first still wife warm died. Yeah. In the White it House. It was gonna basically. be a bad thing. So like I'm pretty yeah. sure she was still in state in the East Room when yeah. they got married. Yeah. He's fine. Yeah. While he was on his honeymoon, the Germans torpedoed the Persia, a ship which killed three hundred and fifty civilians. But you know, he was like, I can't be bothered. Here's where I think is more important as to why we joined the war. So if you know, do you know what the Zimmerman telegram was? Yeah, I've got some notes on it. It's about like Germany and Mexico, right? Germany and Mexico, yeah. yeah. We had great code crackers yep. that were able to not only find the telegram, but understood what it was saying. Yep. Pancho Villa kept capturing and killing Americans. Yes. And he came into New Mexico, so Wilson sent Pershing after him. Yes, General so, John Pershing. So Pershing is a like relative hero in the military world. Yeah. There's already animosity with Woodrow Wilson in Mexico yep. before the Zimmerman telegram. Correct. Patton actually killed Lieutenant George Patton. Huh. Pancho Villa's number two in command. Drove back to their headquarters with the dude strapped to his hood. Wow. That's a very <laughs> Patton thing to do. Oh That's very Patton. It's very Patton. So with this a little bit of context... Of uh, he was kind of out of a lot of the stuff that was happening in the Atlantic, yeah. Uh, to include Lusitania, yep. Then the Zimmerman telegram comes yeah. out. My earlier statement: the Lusitania was the first domino to fall. I mean, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, then everybody joins up. Yes, Lusitania. Which, that story is crazy too, because it yeah. was like the dude was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes, ends up like in a back alley, and then they made a wrong turn, and he was like, "Oh, yeah. there he is! Oh, there's the guy I'm supposed to kill." <laughs> yeah. 
right? Like, I'm but not wrong about Serbian. that, right? No, you're 100% yeah. right about that. The Zimmerman telegram yeah. was a German telegram that was urging the Mexico to invade the United States and then invite Japan to join their cause. It was a way to and they distract offered them the U.S. Yeah. Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Yeah. And that's what got him to act because he's already pissed at Pancho Villa. Correct. And Patton's down there like, I'll, I'll take him. I got yeah. this. And Pershing we, is. We don't need to join that war. I can yeah. just take Pancho Villa out right now. Yeah. I'll just take him I don't know if you know it. I've got his dude on my hood of my he's Jeep. Right, he's right here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that because I, I did have some notes on the Zimmerman telegram. I'm glad that you, being the resident Zimmerman, your family has passed this lore down to you for centuries. Yeah, it's in our New Testament. <laughs> This was an interesting tie, I thought, with John Adams. Number two, what do we call his episode? The Voice? The Voice, yeah. So the Espionage Act of 1917 made it a crime to help wartime enemies to interfere with the military recruitment or the draft. So there was also a Sedition Act of 1918, which amended the Espionage Act by curtailing speech during wartime. And it forbade the use of disloyal, profane, scurrilous or abusive language about the government during times of war. So part of this podcast journey is talking about how, you know, history can often repeat itself. And just thinking about how Adams, a century earlier, plus a little bit, was doing things with the Alien and Sedition Acts that Woodrow Wilson then in 1917 and 18 was somewhat repeating a little bit as far as the powers of the free press, of speech. Basically, you cannot talk bad about the government during a time of war. Let's take a break. Yeah. And let's talk about his reelection and a little bit more about World War One. I. I feel like we are kind of jumping around on the timeline yeah. a little bit, but you know, who That's cares? Okay. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Pioneer of the Presidential Podcast. Hey guys, it's Ryan. If you are in the market to refinance your mortgage and want an expert to walk you through that process, you need to schedule a call today with Austin Bowman at Caliber Home Loans. Austin's been a friend of mine for years and is one of Caliber's top performing loan consultants with over 14 years of experience and expertise. Austin's number one priority is honesty. He's going to listen to your unique needs and guide you through Caliber's superior processing, underwriting, and closing process. For a smooth, hassle-free process from application to closing on your new mortgage, email Austin Bowman today at austin.bowman, that's B-O-W-M-A-N, at caliberhomeloans.com. You can also find Austin's email in our show notes. Whatever you do, don't ask Austin about the time when he took me out for my first time golfing when we were 16 and we almost hit a goose with our cart. Guys, email austin.bowman at caliberhomeloans.com today. Hey guys, it's Ryan. If you need custom-made t-shirts for your team or organization, look no further than our good friends here in Indy, The Art Press. The Art Press is a local, eco-friendly small business that's been around for years here in Indy, designing and printing all the super comfortable shirts you may have seen through their parent company's store, Vardigan. We've worked with them on our awesome new shirts that feature Thomas Jefferson writing a fire-breathing mastodon, and our experience couldn't have gone better. If you need help creating a design or you have your artwork ready to print, Derek and the team at The Art Press can help you get your orders set up online quickly and easily. Plus, they ship everywhere and offer excellent customer service. Get a quote on your order of shirts today at theartpress.com. That's theartpress.com. Hey, welcome back. So before the break, we were talking about World War I, but we kind of glossed over Woodrow Wilson's re-election. So he was nominated to run for presidency again in 1916 on the first ballot 
along with Marshall, who Russ told us about, as his VP. He was opposed by Republican Charles Evans Hughes. The Mm -hmm. Democrats used the slogan, he kept us out of war as they campaigned for Wilson. Hughes had a lot of support, but Wilson ultimately won in a close election with 277 out of 534 electoral votes. He was the first president to take the oath of office on a Sunday. His public inauguration was held on March 5th, 1917. He was sworn in the second time the day before on a Sunday, which I thought was kind of cool. So earlier in the episode, I said that we had a JFK theophany. This is where it comes in. And do you want to just brief the people again on what a theophany in our context is? In our context, it's when a future president shows up in a current president's story. Correct. It's this based is our off third the, one for this episode. Based correct? off the theological term, talking about a pre-incarnate Jesus showing up in the <clears throat> Hebrew Torah. There you go. So his motto for the 1916 presidential election was yep. America first. Foreshadowing. But that's not the theophany. Okay. One of his most famous quotes was an open-air convention behind Independence Hall in Philadelphia Hmm. to whom he said Americans needed more than a simple understanding of their ideas. Each citizen should ask not what his country should do for him, but to think first not of himself or of any interest which we may be called upon to sacrifice, but of the country which we serve. Hmm. JFK has rolled off the tongue a little bit better, but I, JFK had to have read or heard that somewhere. 100%, or someone did and yeah, wrote it. Was like, hey, this would be really good. So Same party. Like, real quick, I read Profiles in Courage. Yeah. Uh, I'm very strongly in the camp that JFK did not write that book. Hmm. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he may have written the forward in the first chapter but he definitely did not write that book and it is also super boring yeah Um, thank you for reading it for us it is it is it was hard to get through anyway so he wins but he barely won he won 10 of the 12 states where women were allowed to vote. Hmm. So basically women swung the election for him yeah for someone who was anti-women he was pretty indifferent about female suffrage anybody that wasn't a white man that's fair yeah 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 Uh, there was a protest outside the white house in 1917 oh boy where people picketing for women's suffrage were hauled away by police he was horrified to learn that they were being force-fed following a hunger strike he said he was horrified. he said he was horrified and it it caused a a prison riot when they force-fed alice paul she went on a hunger strike in mm-hmm. prison. They force-fed her, and it caused a full-fledged prison riot. Mm. Also, he had Eugene Debs arrested. We talked a little yeah, bit sure. about Socialist presidential his version of the Alien Sedition Act. Yeah, yeah. And this is also where, Russ, what's the famous FBI guy? J. J. Edgar, Edgar Hoover. 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 Yeah. That's where, this is where he got his rise to power, because there were all these bombings, or alleged bombings, or thwarted bombings, where J. Edgar Hoover just started throwing out, hey... We're just going to ransack your apartment. Mm. Multiple constitutional problems. Yeah. And this is pre-Patriot Act, Patriot Act. Go ahead. Or post-Alien Sedition Act. (sighs) This was the in-between, right? This is where we start saying, hey, in the interest of national security, Mm. you're not allowed to say things that we aren't comfortable with. Yeah. Speaking of women's suffrage, uh, the 19th Amendment was eventually ratified in August of 1920, finally granting women the right to cast their vote. Let's talk about the 14 points, Spanish flu, and the Nobel Prize, shall we? So 14-point plan, a little bit backwards. Sure. He partnered with another theophany, Herbert Hoover, Mm. with some other propaganda 
to convince people to ration things. So they were collectively conserving was the way that they worded it. Meatless Monday, Wheatless Wednesday, basically convincing people to do things in the name of patriotism. Yeah. He gets credit for it, but as we'll learn, a lot of these ideas came from Herbert Hoover, Hmm. who unfortunately pegged for the wrong things. But like a lot of the stuff that made us so successful in the war of attrition in World War One was Herbert Hoover's ideals that yeah. Wilson adopted. And I had this for a little known fact, but Wilson really wanted to be a model for Americans in supporting the troops overseas. And he allowed a flock of sheep to roam the grounds of the White House and eat grass, which cut down on the manpower needed to maintain the lawn. So he was rationing manpower and the sheep's wool was auctioned off and it raised over $50,000 for the Red Cross. So So he wasn't always horrible. Yeah. So Wilson creates his famous 14 points, laying out the goals that the U.S. and later other allies had for worldwide peace. He actually presented them in a speech given to a joint session of Congress 10 months before the end of the Great War. One of the 14 points called for the creation of a worldwide association of nations that would become the League of Nations or the predecessor to the U.N., the United Nations. Around this time, there was a lethal flu pandemic called at the time the Spanish flu because Spain's king. Alfonso Twelfth became its most publicized survivor. So it had nothing to do with the origin of the pandemic, but it had to do with the most famous survivor of the pandemic. And it would be responsible for half the deaths of American soldiers fighting the war. The Black Death killed 75 million people over four centuries, many, many, many years ago. This pandemic infected a billion people worldwide, killing 100 million of them worldwide. Wait, give me the numbers on the Black Death again. Sure. 75 million people over 400 years. 400 years. years. Mm -hmm. This was one to two years infecting a billion people worldwide, killing 100 million of them. Yeah. So more than four centuries of... uh, Yeah, I I guess I'm curious. What is the focus point on 400 years? Well, it's just how long the Black Death lasted. No, I understand that. But like at that point, isn't it just like life? Yeah. Just overall. Like, like, do we have to name it if it lasts 400 years? Like, that's just, this is the life we live. Yeah. Maybe there was a plague vaccine that came out at the end of it. I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, 500 years from now, this will be the cancer period. Right. And because cancer will be eradicated and and people will be like, remember when people had that thing? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, it would be great. Yeah. There was an armistice uh, signed on November 11th, 1918. The Treaty of Versailles signed in 1919 blamed the war on Germany and demanded huge reparations. Though it was signed, opposition to the League of Nations in Congress meant that the treaty went unratified and Wilson would end up winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1919 for his efforts to avert future world wars. And then he was the first president to visit the pope he was so there's another first yeah and good name for this episode by the way i i I really admire how many firsts you have dug through for woodrow wilson i think it is important (laughs) to note we are recording this on november 8th veterans day is in a couple of days from now yes i think that it was kind of cool that this lined up yeah, right. that is really uh, cool. I, I don't know when it's going to release. Probably well, what January, February. One hundred and three years this week was when, when at least when we're recording, it was when the armistice was signed. And it is really interesting to me personally yeah. that our Veterans Day is based on a war that is a lot of times forgotten mm. in the history of wars. Yeah, right. Like think about everybody you know that might be a history buff, sure, or a war buff. What do they know about? They know about the Civil War. Revolution. And Revolution. World War, II. World War II. 
yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. Maybe current OIF, OEF. Like, and then you have the, the folks that fought in Desert Storm sure. that want to make it seem like it was a big deal. Korea and World War I, mm-hmm. Spanish-American War, all get somewhat glossed over. You're right. Yeah. World War One, I, I think, gets glossed over the most. And I think that the most egregious part about that yeah. is World War One was the introduction of the machine gun. Mm. Depending on which historian you talk to, the introduction of the machine gun is the most game-changing weapon that's ever come to warfare, mm. to include the atomic bomb. Because you now have a weapon that can mass-produce casualties on the battlefield from a point-to-point standpoint in a few seconds yeah like granted the atomic bomb is obviously it's a mass casualty producing weapon but it's more of a threat of a Mm. weapon than an actual use sure the machine gun in a time where we have been single shot reloading you now have the ability to sit in one nest and just lay down hate Mm. Four minutes at a time where no one can move and it completely changed warfare and i think that that gets glossed over a lot because there aren't these super famous there's no Patton, yeah there's no macarthur right there's no longstreet there's no lee you know of world war one because we joined so late we were only in the war for what a year and a half two years yeah i guess technically we weren't really in the war to have all these victories we kind of joined really late it was a war of attrition it was already on the back side we put our force behind the side that was already winning mm-hmm. so we don't have these huge wins so we don't have the the stories yeah. behind of it and i think that that gets glossed over a lot but veterans day is named after it yeah it was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Mm-hmm. What we didn't know was what, 15 years later, yeah. we're right back in it. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from World War One. Yeah. And there's still, to this day, trench warfare training sites at Fort Benning. But I think that there's a nod to like understanding where you came from. Right? Yeah. Thank you, Blaine. Thanks. Toward the end of Woodrow's second term, he gave 39 speeches over three weeks across the country and was plagued by various illnesses, including the flu. On October 2nd, 1919, he suffered a stroke which impaired his mobility and left him partially paralyzed. Fearing the implications of having an infirm president and with the Constitution being pretty unclear as to whether the vice president, Thomas Marshall, should assume his duties, the Wilson regime went on as usual. Owing to his diminished state, however, his wife, Edith began to take on a much more prominent role in his affairs. She refused to make her husband resign and allow the VP to take over. Instead, she began what she would later call her one-year and five-month-long stewardship of her husband's presidency, which lasted through the end of Wilson's time in office in March of 1921. If I may. Yeah, please. Right before that stroke was when they were doing the Treaty of Versailles. 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 As we would say in Indiana, Versailles. Versailles. I know it's I know it's Versailles. It's Versailles. Yeah. So he started showing some signs that things might be going sideways during the second round of negotiations, which by the way, they signed that treaty in a place called the Hall of Mirrors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Louis Louis the 16th, right? 
weird place to sign a treaty, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. am I signing this one? Am I signing that one? Am I fat? Am I tall? Am I skinny? <laughs> <laughs> this is where people started wondering, like, does he have dementia? Is he having a stroke? Mm. What's going on? He got really invested in the furniture, like in the building where they were doing treating him for Scythe. The greens and reds are all mixed up here, and there is no harmony. Here is a big purple, high-back covered chair, which is like the purple cow, straight off to itself, and it is placed wherever the light shines on it too brightly. If you will give me a lift, we will move this to the next wall, where the light from the window will give it a subdued effect. And here are two chairs. One green and the other red, and this will never do. Let's put the greens together and the reds together. And they didn't end there. He described the council of four meetings, how each delegation walked like school children each day to its respective corner. Now, with the furniture regrouped, he said each country would sit according to color with the reds in the American corner and the greens in the British corner and the rest in the center for the French. That's great. Like... Good job. Great Thank you. So I guess we could have seen it coming. Yeah. <laughs> that was during the negotiations before his wife was president. Yeah. Before. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Because okay. she definitely was. Yeah. So there were a lot of things that went down. So he was intellectually there. Physically, he was impaired. I think his left side might have been physically impaired. Like, mm-hmm. And he was basically bedridden at this point. Yeah. And basically, she became this gatekeeper that locked things down. You she could not even get into his room. Master. She was what? <laughs> looking for the key master. There is no Dana. Only Edith. <laughs> <laughs> really, she became... Officially, uh, I mean, this was before the 25th Amendment, which well, we've, which we've heard about a lot of. It's the reason for the 25th yeah, Amendment. Yeah, it's the reason for it. So this didn't get ratified, though, until 1967, which basically allowed for constitutional measures to deal with temporary or permanent incapacity of the president and off. We heard about it, I think, when George W. Bush went under for a colonoscopy. He transferred powers to VP Cheney at the time. We heard getting called for with Trump and sometimes with Biden. So We didn't th- hear about the Nope. Any of that stuff on this ep- or in this podcast? No, not on we this episode. But I'm saying culturally, the oh, 25th okay. Amendment became somewhat more of a hot topic recently. But it really started with you've got a president who is alive, who is intellectually there, but cannot perform physically whatsoever. And they were, I mean, man, they were making up every excuse for people not to be able to meet with the president. And so they really kept the VP in the dark. They kept Congress in the dark. But Edith was really running the show at this point. I agree. So eventually in 1920, uh, Wilson calls for a great and solemn referendum on the treaty and the League of Nations, and he entertained the idea about running on that issue himself. Edith and his closest friends quietly scratched those notions. Instead, the Democrats nominated James Cox, the governor of Ohio, on the strength of his lack of association with the president. Although an administration loyalist, assistant secretary of the Navy, and Woodrow Wilson fanboy Franklin D. Roosevelt received the the vice presidential nomination. Yeah. Real quick, before that, prohibition was brought into effect, which oh. is why we are drinking this. Old Forester, yeah. Forester, 1920. 1920. Prohibition so style. it was in the election year. So this is the year that Warren G. was yeah. elected mm-hmm. and Nate Dogg. The, <laughs> when it was brought into effect, Tumulty actually vetoed it. Remind me who Tumulty is. So he was like Edith's, Edith's counsel. inner circle. Yeah. yeah, He's the one that vetoed it. So hmm. we actually had somebody that wasn't a president veto a law. Huh. But it didn't matter because Congress overturned it and yeah. we had prohibition. I think like Wilson would like 
Chicken Scratch his signature to things. Would he? Or would somebody pick his hand up? Yeah. And move it? Yeah. Only Edith, Dr. Grayson, and Secretary Tumulty knew what was going on. Mm. So Henry Cabot Lodge got the treaty rejected. Yeah. And that bothered me because it was all partisanship. Well, in 1920, the election did become a referendum on Woodrow Wilson, and Warren G. Harding called for a return to normalcy and blamed all the country's troubles on the man in the White House. Republicans won a landslide victory, which they interpreted as a mandate to reverse Wilson's progressive policies at home and his internationalism abroad. He retired to his recently purchased home in Washington, D.C., where he formed a short-lived law partnership with his former Secretary of State, Bainbridge Colby, which was dissolved when it became blatantly obvious that Woodrow Wilson was unable to do the legal work. Although he was nearly blind and remained partially paralyzed, he fantasized about running for a third term in 1924 to seek a referendum from the American people on the League of Nations. He just couldn't give up on wanting to become president. In August of 1923, he published a plea for a more enlightened foreign policy entitled The Road Away from Revolution. And in November, he labored his way through a short Armistice Day address on a nationwide radio network, which was actually the first remote live radio broadcast, but he could not manage any real public role. He died quietly at his home on February 3rd, 1924. His last words, Blaine, were, quote, I knew you'd have him. I am a broken piece of machinery. When the machinery is broken... I am ready. Wilson is the only U.S. president buried in the nation's capital. His final resting place is a sarcophagus at the Washington National Cathedral. Taft and JFK are interred nearby at Arlington, Virginia. Edith joined him in Arlington when she died at age 85 on December 28, 1961, which would have been her late husband's 105th birthday. So she made it through JFK. She was at JFK's inauguration. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And she was also in the address in Congress when FDR addressed after the attack of Pearl Harbor. She was there. Those couldn't have really been his last words, right? They were. I'm a broken piece of machinery. When the machinery is broken, I'm ready. (laughs) No, they weren't. (laughs) They were definitely not. What do you think they were instead? I don't know. I feel like Edith wrote those Uh, down and said these were his Uh, last words. history. But that's very cognizant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For somebody that's been, uh, what, five strokes deep? Yeah, at that point, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. His last home on S Street in Washington, which was filled with mementos of his public career and largely kept unchanged by Edith, is now a museum maintained by the National Trust. Let's get into his legacy, shall we? So his historical reputation at first suffered from his failure to carry the day in his last years of the presidency and the ascendancy of the Republicans. And it declined further during the 1930s. There was this national revulsion against World War I in the 30s. So his reputation got somewhat tarnished during that. But during World War II, his reputation (laughs) soared. That was what tarnished his reputation, was the fact that he did two years of World War I, not as racism, or the fact that he died in office. He's only a machine. Yeah. (laughs) He's broken. Purely a broken machine. Back in World War II, his reputation soared as he came to be regarded as a wrongly unheeded prophet whose policies would have prevented world calamity. Yeah, they were like, look, guys, we freaking love war. Yeah. (laughs) Believe me, this is just the beginning. Yeah, we do this really well. (laughs) 
We do this every episode where the uh, there's a C-SPAN <laughs> presidential historian survey that we always take a look at. And Woodrow Wilson... I love cr- that like, this entire episode has just been you seeing how salty I can get. I love being it. Like, can I get it back on track? I love and it. I also am excited for like how off the rails Reagan's going to get. Oh, I love salty Blaine. <laughs> like, I love salty if you Blaine. think I'm salty on Woodrow Wilson... Mm. There are some coming up that people hate that I'm like, hey, he's not that bad of a guy. Yeah. Like who? Who do Herbert people? Hoover. Oh, okay. I don't know anyone who hates Herbert Hoover. Yeah, you do. Do you know anyone nowadays who hates Herbert Hoover or I even mean, knows FDR, about her? The guy that wrote FDR's biography. Anybody that likes FDR? In your circle, <laughs> do you know of anyone who hates it? Uh, oh, Herbert no. Hoover? I mean, do you know anybody in our circle that listens to our podcast we love our listeners all 13 of <laughs> clearly <laughs> well speaking of 13 that's where wilson we do sits. this for you and not for us at all <laughs> not at all uh he is below monroe and above mckinley mm. yeah okay that's c-span though and there's a lot of factors what number that that. 13 13 yeah. yeah don't like that why don't you like it because it should be like 30 33 maybe really yeah he sucks Okay. Well, let's talk about this then. So, okay. what we we answer this question all the time. Woodrow Wilson is the reason the United States of America dot dot dot. Well, okay. Go ahead. Let me just say I think he sucks from a character lens. I don't know what I guess if we're going to answer the question. Okay. It's the reason the United States got into World War 1 much later than it needed to. Hmm. Okay. I think that is a fair assessment. First, yeah. I don't like the guy. Okay. I would say that he held it off. TR would have put us in that war much sooner, and much more mm. people would have died from the United States. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Okay. Right? Yeah, she was pretty aggressive. Had the first female president. Oh, oh. that's good. Oh. You, you're going to be the guy that when we do eventually get a female president, Russ is going to be like, actually, no, that's good, Russ. Yeah. You win. I think that's good. Yeah. I was going to go with just as the UN. I mean, just in general, you know, League of Nations. And really, people that's, don't even like that now. I mean, that's what I, that's what I really remember from, from high school class was just that. Not even World War One. I. I think you're right, Blaine. When we do honor our veterans on Veterans Day, we think of, oh, it's the November 11th. Like, did yeah. not even remember that it's Armistice it's Day. It's Armistice Day. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. based on World War. Here, yeah. Here's the thing. Like, I can completely dislike the guy, but understand, like, some of the positives, right? Okay. Like in this case, there probably really wasn't a reason for us to join World War One. Maybe even not when we did. Okay. But we did for specific reasons, right? So they sunk the Lusitania, to your point. Mm-hmm. They were trying to get Mexico to invade the United States. Your and family. we had to kind of yeah. come in and say, your yes, family my family was the ones. Can I say something, though? Yeah. No. Uh, when... <laughs> When Wilson was, was his health was really back and forth and yeah. Marshall wasn't really being told about it. He got punked in church once. Hmm. Yeah. There, what? The, the, I'm telling you, there was a messenger. He sang the third verse when he wasn't <laughs> supposed to. Everybody went to four. There was a messenger that was sent to his church to tell him that Wilson had died. I died. Yeah. yeah. And he and announced he, it. He announced it to the church. Yeah. He was like, <laughs> this is great. Uh, yeah. Was, Wilson died. And Ashton Kusher was like, you got punk, bro. <laughs> Basically, he left the church and they were like, no, nah, he's still alive. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. They got punked. Yeah. He got punked. Hmm. 
Let's dive into some little known facts about Woodrow Wilson, shall we? So he's on the $100,000 bill, which is actually a note, a gold certificate that was never circulated or issued for public use. And there's only about 40,000 of them that were ever printed, but he's on the $100,000 bill. And on the back, it just says $100,000. No fancy like building. It's a gold certificate? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Golden ticket. He loved golf. He, okay. he thought it was a silly game, but he played it a lot. Go ahead, Blaine. Wow. Okay. So the author posits, both of you be my, like, my notes are closed. Go ahead. The author posits he's played more golf than anyone before or since. Uh, Presidents and- or just anyone? Presidents. Yeah absolutely zero chance that is true we've already covered how much golf taft played and if we're going by strokes clearly (laughs) taft well i don't know wilson had a lot of strokes okay (laughs) by far the best joke you've ever made in this podcast that that warms my heart Uh, four no actually sir you've had seven yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right so Taft played a lot of golf. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower played a ton. Yeah. And knowing this book was written pre-Obama and pre-Trump, so in the parlance of our times, yeah. everybody wants to be like, well, Obama played a lot of golf, or, well, Trump played a lot of golf, depending on what side you're on. People want to pretend like our two most recent presidents played the most golf. Eisenhower was gifted a house on Augusta National, which is where the Masters are played. And he constantly asked for a tree to be removed so much (laughs) that it was called Eisenhower's tree because he hit it off the tee box, which Mm. we'll talk about in his episode. That dude played so much golf. Yeah. For other entertainment, Woodrow Wilson also liked to attend baseball games, vaudeville performances, and musical comedies. And he especially enjoyed, in the privacy of the White House, reading aloud from his favorite English poets. Wilson also put the first Jewish justice on the Supreme Court. In 1916, the president yeah. pushed for Louis... Some Br- of my best friends are Jews. <laughs> like, that's that's him. That's him. Louis, He's that guy. My Lu- lawyer's Jewish. Louis Brandeis oh. to be named to the high court against fierce opposition. But in the end, he prevailed. So, Louis Brandeis. Uh, he was the first president to routinely screen movies in the White House. He was yeah, we he talked was. about that. I know, but he was gifted a projector in 1918 by Douglas Fairbanks, an actor, oh, yeah. uh, with whom he would watch movies with regularity. Sometimes he watched up to five hours a day. While cruising the Atlantic following the Allied victory in the Great War, he set up the projector so troops could enjoy Charlie Chaplin films. That's my last little known fact. Do you guys have any? Little known fact, I don't like Woodrow Wilson. No, that's a pretty well-known fact. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Presequential Podcast brought to you by Greek's Pizzeria. Thanks also to our other sponsors, Austin Bowman of Caliber Home Loans and Chop Chop Barbershop and the Art Press. You can get one of these swell Mastodon shirts at ryansongs.com. If you love this episode, please subscribe. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review. We love to read them. And connect with us on social media at Presequential. Our next episode on 29th President Warren G. Harding will be released on Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Don't forget to sign up and become a patron at patreon.com slash presequential. We hope you enjoyed episode 28, The Pioneer of the Presequential Podcast. 